this is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 14th of February 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jon. Hello, Dave. Hello, Jon. You sound terribly chipper for somebody who hasn't slept in three days. Uh, yeah, a little bit, little bit like that. Um, so how was a secret mission in darkest Africa? It was very good, very good. Went to Johannesburg, met up with uh, several different organizations, had a very, very good time, kind of a couple of meetings, all-day workshop, all sorts of uh, exciting things discussed, and um, did actually uh, talk about the podcast very briefly, introduced it to the audience right at the very end of my uh, my day there, as they got to know them a bit and thought it was uh, worth doing. And several of them went ahead and uh, immediately went and looked it up. So hopefully we may have some new subscribers from South Africa. Well, hey! Excellent. Good stuff. So to anybody that I met out there, hello, congratulations, welcome. And with that, I guess it's on with the show. Uh, yes, unless you want to wish each other a happy Valentine or something. Well, yeah, I guess we could do. Happy podcast weird, Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we go to the news, we have to mention the raffle one last time. We do, we do. So, um, get your raffle tickets uh, for this period. If you don't know how to enter the raffle or what the raffle is, go ahead and check out one of our previous episodes, which is the episode... Oh, where did we talk about the raffle? Oh, 33, I guess. 33, I think you're right, 33, 34, 35. The Roaring News, yeah. So go ahead, take a listen to that, find out what the raffle is. The prize, however, you definitely should know about. It's a free pass to Hadoop Summit in Munich. So free pass, gets you into all the sessions... All the keynotes gets you into the exhibition center. Um, it doesn't include travel or flights. You'll have to sort that out yourself, but it does include everything else. So if you want that, go listen to the episode, find out what the uh, the rules are. But this contest closes now. We're getting close to the end. Closes on the 21st of February at 2359 UTC for those people who love time zones um, and we'll be announcing the winners on the 28th of February on our show then so good luck you've got still got a few more days to get your entrances in get more tickets for the raffle and uh, yeah get those tweets and other things are flying yeah and for a little bit more background behind the whole Hortonworks uh, or data summit I must say now uh, we've got a little talk with Raphael, which we recorded earlier. Raphael Koss is a uh, what's his role at Hortonworks? Um, so he's what he's sort of community engagement manager uh-huh. at Hortonworks. Okay, so he's going to talk a little bit about uh, about the prize and everything, I guess. Yeah, about the prize, about the summit, and how cool it is, and why you should want to be there. So yeah, here apart from, from just Raphael. meeting Dave and me, of course. Of course. <laughs> so quick fade out to Raphael, and we'll be back after what he has to say. So. Welcome. We have today Raphael Koss, who's come to talk to us a little bit briefly about uh, the DataWorks Summit. And uh, Raphael, welcome to the Roaring Elephant podcast. Thanks, guys, for having me here. Excellent. Hello, Raphael. So um, we wanted to, uh, you know, have you briefly introduce the perhaps introduce the data work summit to someone who's never been to uh, any of the Hadoop summits previously what's it all about what's what's interesting about it 
Okay, so uh, first and foremost, uh, I probably uh, want to just mention. Um, so this is kind of like uh, Prince, you know, the, the the artist formerly known as Prince. So previously it was uh, <laughs> previously it was known as just the Hadoop Summit, and um, and it's been around for about uh, eight years or so. And um, what's happened is this year it's now called the DataWorks slash Hadoop Summit. And so, you know, one of the things it's it's a conference really focused around. Initially started around a conference really focused around the the Apache Hadoop ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? So not just Apache Hadoop, but the whole extended ecosystem around it. And one of the things that's happened over the last few years is that you know uh, that ecosystem has just continued to get broader and broader. That we wanted to make it clear that you know yes, you know there's still a big key focus on you know the Apache Hadoop ecosystem. But, you know, Apache Spark, Apache DiFi, you know, TensorFlow, uh, all these other sort of open source technologies around uh, these data systems are emerging, and, and we want to sort of be inclusive to that. So, you know, it's a conference. Uh, it's a worldwide conference that happens uh, in Europe and United States and in uh, Australia. Uh, there's three of them. The first one is this year is in Munich this year. Uh, it's a two-day event about 70 uh, breakout sessions, very technical. Uh, there's also a business track, and there's a whole sort of ecosystem of uh, content, right? So some of that's the actual sessions. Uh, there's meetups. Uh, there's Bridge of a Feathers to kind of network with, you know, the extended community, whether it's Apache committers or different leaders within that. You have time for people to sort of ask questions, right? So it's, it's a good way to kind of, like, uh, figure out what's happening in the community, what's the latest sort of trends, Listen to uh, what how people are using the technology. So lots of lots of discussions around use cases, um, and you know it's this continuation of the the, the Hadoop summit. Now the DataWorks Hadoop summit. Yeah, great. So really, kind of embracing that that wider ecosystem that's all across big data, not just focusing on Hadoop anymore. Yeah, absolutely, and very much focus around the the open source ecosystem around that. Excellent. Great, great. So, I mean, I think really that that sort of I was going to ask you what's different to last year, but it sounds like that's really the the step change. Is there anything else that you consider, you know, an evolution that's that's evolved from uh, where we were previously to what's coming up this year? Um, you know, I think um, one of the things that sort of uh, seems to be keep evolving is um, one is uh, the focus on cloud. Right, so you know, uh, what's the different uh, open source technologies that people are working with uh, to the various clouds, and how uh, Hadoop and Spark are sort of integrating with that. So I seem to be like uh, more sessions around that. And then the other thing is, you know, the Spark data science track is is definitely the, the largest track uh, where we get the most amount of uh, submissions uh, mm -hmm. of people submitting uh, topics, and you know that. So that's still true. But I think this year we're starting to see things around, uh, you know, deep learning, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing some sessions sort of come in that. So, so we're seeing that continue to evolve and grow. Fantastic. All right. And and so, you know, really, what are you most looking forward to this year with, with the DataWorks summits? Uh, so, so I think this year I, yeah, I'm really excited about uh, this whole uh, deep learning, artificial intelligence, and uh, uh, seeing that content and seeing where that goes, and, and you know, people just seeing being able to get more value for your data, right? Uh, using these advanced analytic techniques. And the other thing is just um, you know, so uh, Apache Hadoop has been around for ten plus years, 
And you know, sometime this year, you know, I just saw a posting. There's a, there's another there's a second alpha drop of Apache Hadoop three. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to be called three, but the next big generation of Apache Hadoop. So, um, I you know, I'm pretty excited to to see that come out, and you know, what that really means for the the whole extended ecosystem, and you know, getting more sort of uh, applications and usage of this cluster, uh, both for Apache Hadoop and sort of the the applications around it. Excellent. Thank you, Raphael, for that. Very much appreciate it. And I'd like to thank Hortonworks again for providing uh, the prize that we are raffling off over this uh, three-episode series, which is a free full pass to uh, the DataWorks Summit in Munich. Um, and we're expecting to have free passes for each and every summit that's running. So stay tuned for those. And uh, Spoiler right alert. Now, <laughs> and right now, um, we've got this the competition running, and when you hear this, this will be your final chance to uh, get an entry to win a, uh, a free pass to the DataWorks Summit, including all the breakout sessions, all the keynotes, access to the exhibition hall. All you need to fund is, uh, is travel and accommodation. So uh, I think great prize, and thank you to, to Hortworks, to Raphael, and the team for providing that. No, thank you guys, and I, I think you guys do a, a great job, kind of keeping the community a, a, a abreast of you know all the latest uh, technologies, and love to reach out to the community and, and help you guys kind of keep going with the, you know this pod, you know very successful podcast so far. Thank you, fantastic. All right, and with that, on with the show, and we're back. Thank you, Raphael, for those nice words, and I guess now it's uh, onto the news. I guess indeed. And since you've not done your homework as much as I have, but okay, you had an excuse. I got three articles I want to talk about, and you had two, I think. That's correct. So you're up first. Let's go first. And oh, my first one is a fun one. It's something I stumbled on by yeah by uh, happenstance. I think uh, is a, is a word. Mm-hmm. And it's a blog actually on the Medium Corporation uh, websites, which we've had already some articles from. I think. Yep. And this blog it's a series of blog posts written by Adam Geitz Gay. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his last name, so sorry about that. And He's probably it's about thinking mis- the same about you. <laughs> yeah, but nobody mentions my name anywhere anyway, so nobody has a problem with that. Anyway, back to the regular broadcast program. Adam's written a couple of blog posts he's on part six now about machine learning as fun. Mm-hmm. And the fun thing about it is it's a very nice mix about uh, between machine learning for dummies, if you like, and still having some code in there. So it really explains the concepts behind it. So it's not really about Spark or about machine learning library XYZ. It's more about mm-hmm. the concepts. And he starts very simply with things like, well, simply <laughs> like speech recognition and how you would do that going into character recognition, going to image recognition. And now again at the end, uh, deep, space re- uh, deep learning speech recognition. So it goes through these simple machine learning algorithms, if you like, all the way up to things using TensorFlow, CNTK stuff, and uh, that kind of uh, junk. But he really nicely introduces the concepts. And, I mean, it's been very enlightening for me, even. Mm-hmm. I've been playing with this stuff for a while now. And, uh, and when somebody asks me, okay, what's the difference between deep learning and machine learning? I'll ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different answers. Yeah. <laughs> and, okay, this blog post series doesn't really give an answer, but it does give you a very nice idea when, okay, he's talking deep learning, so this is the area, the region, these are the steps, these are the methodologies you use for that thing. 
So, a really, really interesting blog post series. I really enjoyed reading them. I'm waiting for the next installment. He actually asks you to sign up and then you get an email when he releases a new point, a new point about it, <laughs> which is a nice way of getting listeners, I guess, or readers in this case. But again, for anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff or you're, you're, you've been doing a lot of machine learning and thinking about going to deep learning, this is a very gradual, nice yeah, movement that way. Yeah, I, I I started to take a look and I looked at the first couple of parts, and it does it does look like a really nice introduction to the topic? Because I mean, I'm not um, I'm not in this particular space in any any depth at all, and so I I do need this kind of dummy's guide sort of intro to these kind of topics. But I found it really easy to really easy to read, really easy to understand, and it it actually. As you say, it comes up with some useful concepts that you can you can relate back to. You know, as in, even you know, starting with the basics of how you uh, how you can recognise that someone has actually said hello. Yeah, yeah, and actually, he ends every blog post with a practical example with uh, downloads from GitHub and compile this or take this little script to actually put into practice the things he just talked about. So. And also, yeah, he pretty much knows what she's talking about because I looked him up. Uh, the internet is very good at that. And he's actually <laughs> working at uh, Groupon as the director of engineering. Ah, so excellent. I'm pretty sure that those guys have a lot of big data. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. So, Adam, if, you, if you're listening to us and you want to come and talk on the podcast about what you're doing, you have an open invitation from my part, and I'm pretty sure Dave wouldn't mind either. Very much so. Sounds good. So, going to put a tweet out for that, of course, but uh, I really advise everybody to read this blog. All right. Over to you. So, from educational and, uh, you know, in-depth deep learning, um, we go into uh, watching a, watching a robot play um, Mario Kart. So, a guy, Kevin Hughes, um, who is a developer at Shopify, um, has uh, on his personal blog, it, this is it's a little bit old, end of December. Um, he'd actually, he actually released this, and he's actually looked at trying to train um, an artificial neural network to play Mario Kart 64. So, he'd uh, he he had a number of attempts at this by you know reading between the lines, um, and but he hadn't touched it in quite a while, um, and he decided in his words he wanted to try out some of the new hotness, a, aka TensorFlow, um, and so this post actually goes through um, how we got it working from from scratch. Um, there is some code in here. There's some um, some information to you know that you could actually go and do this yourself. The you know there's code on GitHub, and you know got some final thoughts. And for those people that aren't in that space but are still curious, yes, there's even a YouTube video of um, the uh, the machine learning um, actually driving Luigi around um, the raceway. So really quite cool. Um, and it, it's you can see sort of untrained sections being driven, fully trained sections being driven and all that sort of stuff. So really cool, really interesting. And, you know, just it just shows actually you don't even need to play games anymore. You just <laughs> let the computer do it for you. Yeah, we're scared computers going to take away our jobs, but they're going to take away our private amusement time as well. Oh, terrible, isn't it? It should be allowed. <laughs> 
it's actually a bit of a coincidence because the guy from my my previous article, Adam, he mm-hmm. also his second uh, uh, installment of that uh, blog post series is actually about using machine learning to generate Super Mario Maker levels. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you also mentioned that there is this there is this kind of thing, this resurgence at the moment of people using you know machine learning to actually go and play retro video games and you know just just to demonstrate because it is one of those problems that's. It, it's it's difficult enough that it's a challenge, but it's not so difficult that you know you could spend years and years on it and, and never mm-hmm. get it done. Yeah, there's a lot of guys uh, looking at the old Atari games from the ST. What was it called? Twenty seven hundred or something? Four number series, anyway. Yeah. And the the thing is that those old games had a kind of AI. If you just look at the original Pong, for example, the little bar going up and down the computer side, that is a kind of AI that kind of tries to beat you but those are very simple by today's standards of course so you don't need supercomputers today to make something that's a lot better than that and the other advantage is that those machines are slow so you can actually use <laughs> simple frame grabber to look at a, a, a display frame analyze the frame see what the situation of the paddles the situation of the, the car of the, the little man that's walking around the screen whatever to analyze what he was doing from the far from the previous frame uh, 60p 1080p didn't exist in those days so yep. it's a very small in data size so it makes it useful or, or you're able to do this at a reasonable speed with a ah, reasonable computer yeah, yeah even a virtual machine somewhere even so yeah there's been a, a lot of people playing with that stuff so uh, i started my computer life in the zx spectrum days so i'm still waiting for someone to do an attic attack uh, ai <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think i'll i'll pass on that although i'd quite enjoy a carrier command ai that would be cool nah, attic attack wins <clears throat> I did I think actually they to it. complete that once. So, yeah, there we go. yeah, but I think they skipped that generation. They went from Atari straight into Nintendo. What is that? Mario Kart? That was Nintendo 64? Yeah, yeah, N64, isn't it? Well, no. That, that, no, that, Super NES? That doesn't, yeah, I think it's Super NES, isn't it? I don't know. I'm not a console person, so I, I don't really recognize it. But yeah, yeah. Neither am I, but I still have each one of them at home. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that just happens here. Yeah. Okay, yeah. moving on. <laughs> Moving on, that's back on my side then, is it? It is. And I click to your link, so okay. Oh yeah, my next one is a bit of a letdown, actually. Let's get up the link. It's a blog post from CERN, actually. Mm-hmm. The Super Collider guys in Switzerland. Or France, Switzerland on the border there somewhere. And normally these guys have very good blog posts, very well thought out. And this one, by reputation only, I think, has been circling the ecosystem. A lot of aggregators have this article in them. But I don't really like the article that much. So I wanted to talk about it anyway and just, uh, well, see what you think about it. Yep. So the article is called Performance Comparison of Different File Formats and Storage Engines in the Hadoop Ecosystem. Now, that sounds great. It does sound like a great title. It does sound like something I would read. Exactly. Enjoy. And it's coming from guys from CERN, which have a reputation for being impartial and giving good, decent, thought-out stuff. So I really went to this article saying, hey, I'm going to learn something here. But... Well, I don't know. There's a couple of starter, I won't say mistakes, but things you shouldn't do, I guess. And I'm just going to, if you put up the link, you can follow it a little bit with me. Uh, I'm talking to Dave and to our listeners as well. If you're in a car, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
But my first thing, the first thing I stumbled upon was when they described the environment. Now, maybe just to give it a little bit of uh, context, they're going to be comparing uh, Apache Avro, Apache Parquet, Apache HBase, and Apache Kudu. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be using Impala to write to those things, which is a bit weird to use Impala to write or to ingest data through Impala to write it into an HBase uh, destination. But I don't mind too much because you need to have a, a single... There needs to be something so, consistent. Yeah, you need yeah. to have something there, so that's fine. Sci-fi. As long as in the results... You're sci-fi. You, um, <laughs> they don't... That Wi-Fi isn't technically Hadoop, so... Nah. No, 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 no. Read, read the title. Read the title. Ecosystem. Full comparison. Exactly. Ecosystem. <sighs> okay, well. They didn't do Sci-Fi, but so I can, that's not a problem. I can forgive them that. Okay. The first thing I had a problem with, though, was their uh, systems they're using. It's a cluster of 40 machines. That's fine. 16 cores each. That's fine. 64 gigabytes of RAM. So, H, yeah, go ahead. So I, I, I get where you're going with the, the, the comment on the RAM, but before you completely blow them out of the water... Do they actually talk about the data volume that they're considering here? Not really. They describe it. It's the, well, the results from the explosions they make. Uh, But they don't really say how much size. It's an index. It's a search index with all the results. But they don't give much of the sizing. What they do give us, which might mean something, is that the JVM heap size for the region servers on HBase have been limited to 30 gigabytes. Now, yeah. maybe that's an ideal size for them, but I don't know. In in my experience, HBase is a memory hog. If you don't get uh, enough yeah. memory, it will crumble. Yeah, it absolutely is. Although, again, I mean, so the reason that I was getting at the size question is mm-hmm. if if the size was, was really that small, then, you know, whether you've got 64 gigs of RAM or, you know, 256, if, if it all fits in regardless, then it doesn't really matter. But it, it is really strange that they don't actually mention the the physical size of the data set because if you don't mention you know the actual overall size of the data set then really what what value does this entire article have they, they do mention the following which i'm not sure if that's what they mean with the test they did or just an example of what they're doing they're saying that each index collision is stored in the event index as a separate record. A record averages 1.5 kilobytes, has 56, uh, no, uh, yeah, 56 attributes, sorry. Mm-hmm. Six of them uniquely identifiable, uh, blah, 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 blah. At the moment, uh, at the given moment, there are six exponent 10 records. So that's a six with uh, 10 zeros, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, in HDFS, that occupies tens of terabytes, not including data replication. But yeah. if that's what they use for the test, I don't think so. Because running a test for tens of terabytes is going to take quite a bit of time. If you do it 20 times, do all the testing they did. On the other hand, it's CERN. So they do things like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if, if you look in this section where they're talking about the tested storage approaches, they talk about um, a good balance between number of partition, partitions, a few thousand, and average partition size, hundreds of megabytes. So... You can potentially infer, you know, hundreds of megabytes, a few thousand partitions. That gives you a, a rough estimate of the data size, maybe. Hmm. 
Yeah, but again, we have to, as a reader, we have to <clears throat> extrapolate things. Yeah, which, mo- which you shouldn't have to do from an article like exactly. this. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 but I think what we've come down to, running through the various numbers that we can extrapolate from, is that you're right. Like, 64 gigs of RAM? Really? It seems a little <laughs> bit uh, on the small side. Yeah. Now, second part, this is about uh, the title, again, comparison of different file formats and storage engine Hadoop ecosystem. And in their conclusion, they actually write something uh, that they, uh, the evaluation of the major data formats and storage engines. So that should be very inclusive. And if you pass from the cluster hardware to the software, they're using Cloudera Data Hub. Fine, 5.0.7, which has a Impala, obviously. HBase one two zero, it's not too old, and Hive one dot one dot zero, which is uh, archaic. But even that's not an issue because they don't do anything with Hive. Yeah. They don't look at Hive. They don't look at the ORC file. Don't look at Hive. Nothing. It's totally forgotten about. Which I, I assume for. I mean, Cloudera Data Hub isn't very hot on Hives. You probably don't use Hive for it. That's great. But don't call the article. We're gonna go look over all of them limited yeah, in yeah. that point to looking at what's by default in the Cloudera distribution, which is fine. It's nothing against that. But again, expectation-wise, <laughs> it was a bit of a letdown there. Yeah. So in the rest of the article, nothing about Hive. Okay, so let's forget that. But then the, yeah, the, 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 the things I talk about, it's all a bit meh. Let's, uh, let's go through the first thing, space utilization. Well, I guess the only real conclusion there, that's the first little graph there, is that if you compress your data, it's smaller. Yeah, yeah. Compressed data takes up less space. Remember that, children. It's very important. Stay in school, kids. And again, this might sound like being pedantic, or, uh, but this is not from CERN, guys. This, no, you can't do this. Going further down, the ingestion rate, so the, 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 the amount of data that can slurp in per second... Very strangely, just writing to disk seems to be faster than throwing it through a storage engine first. So adding computational cycles slows things down. Yep. Who the, who the tongue? I don't know. It's a complete surprise to me. Again, guys, tell us, make two different tests, compare differently. And actually, they, they do mention these things in their comments as well. So it's not like they're glossing over it, but... It really takes away value from this, uh, from what they're doing here, which is which is a shame, really. And just look at what I've put in there. So, yeah, also they put something in there. Because Apache Impala performs data reshuffling in order to write into a single HDFS directory between uh, brackets, Hive partition. What? That does not compute. Am I missing something? I don't know. How would you? I mean, a Hive partition, that's a table? structured thing i'm kind of assuming impala doesn't use hive partitioning having a hive partition on a directory file system doesn't really make sense either no not to me anyway so again weird and uh yeah okay this uh, uh one thing i had put in here oh yeah they also uh, in the graph it shows that uh hbase is slightly worse off than kudu which this is one of the be- the good things about the article i'd say it's one of the first articles where i see kudu being used in a test mm-hmm. so that's what kept my interest through the whole article just to see how kudu works a bit and in this ingestion rate the hbase is a little lower than kudu but then at the uh comments they put in 
that the HBAT test was slower, but that's most likely caused because a uh, row key length, which was very bad, uh, around 60 bytes, and HBase had to do some extra stuff for that. So again, this is a test with results that don't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, not, 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 their, not their finest hour. Uh, no, and they go on with the same thing for the rest, and they do random data lookup. And would you know if you have to do a full table, a full file scan to find a certain row that's actually slow? It, it yeah. does surprise me. Does it surprise does. me. That's weird. Anyway, I got some more text here, but I'm not going to read all. I, I was very disappointed in this article, especially because of the one very good reputation CERN usually has, mm-hmm. the way this has been disseminated. I mean, I have I've seen customers talk about this, colleagues talk about this. When I mentioned this just before the recording, you said you already rec- encountered it too. So it's getting a lot of visibility out there. But if you're beginning, if you're a bit in the unknown about the whole Hadoop thing, you might go to this with the expectation of getting some decent hard science information and the the reason i want to put it up here is is a little warning sign uh really read this and make sure understand what's right what's written here because it means absolutely very little (laughs) pretty much pretty much their conclusion yeah as i said evaluation of the major data formats you can't say that and not put in hive sorry and little graph at the bottom. That's a nice graph. But uh, yeah, very disappointed in CERN here, guys. You, you have done better than this. Keep up the good work. Don't do this again. <laughs> <laughs> and with that telling off, let's uh, move on to the next article, which I believe is mine. Uh, yes. So my article is just... Um, so I think we're going to do a set of uh, podcast episodes in the future on the the individual roles that you see um, within big data projects, because I think it's quite interesting, and I think it'd be something that the audience would also be interested in. Um, mm-hmm. And, and this, now you talked about it, it's become a promise you have to do it. There we go. But so this is the role of the data engineer, and I, I just I, I came across this article. I just thought it was a really nice explanation of what the data engineer role is. Um, and it, it basically starts off with um, you know simple explanation, and really the the core of what the data engineer is. Um, you can explain it like um, companies are storing uh, a variety of different data formats and a variety of different um, sort of data types across um, a whole range of different areas. And the data engineers, um, as described here, are the people that build the the pipelines that transform that data into formats that data scientists can actually use and consume easily. So they're they're doing all of the hard work so that data scientists can get all the praise. (laughs) But it it kind of goes through some of the... Well, that's fine too. (laughs) But it it goes through sort of some of the different options, the different phases that uh, people will go through. Um, It talks a little bit about um, sort of data quality and how that plays into things. It also talks about, you know, if if you're looking to be be a data engineer or you're looking for a data engineer, then the the kind of skills that you, you know, might need to focus on. Um, And then it talks about um, like the different types of data engineers. So, you know, a, a generalist data engineer, you know, the the kind of person you'd probably see at a small to medium um, organization who is the one and only data focused person and, you know, does jack of all trades kind of uh, approach, does anything and everything. Um, 
you get sort of pipeline centric data center engineers that you know work with pipelining data into environments and you know from from end to usable data and then you get database centric uh, data engineers who are mainly working with you know more of the traditional uh, structured data and etl work and pulling data out of enterprise data warehouses and stuff like that. So I, I just think it's a really nice nice little article. It gives a good uh, explanation of what the data engineer role is, why, you know, why it's important, why you can't just or shouldn't just um, you know, expect this role to be done by um, the data scientists. You know, really their expertise is um, in that exploration and analysis when they actually have you know, real nice, clean, usable data. Um, so having a, a role that specializes in actually getting that data there in the first place makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <clears throat> totally. Sorry about that. And actually, it's a nice segue in my next article, which will be coming up in a second, because uh, the same guys from who wrote that article also wrote an article that's about how to land a job in data science. And mm-hmm. they're taking the same approach from a different angle, where they start with the fact that data scientists typically aren't good in a production environment because they're good at exploration and finding new things and doing fun stuff but then it has to go into real code or real flows or whatever that's where they don't have the knowledge as readily available and a data engineer is the, the, the 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 role that can has that has the glue between the two parts if you like and they've done a little bit of, uh, uh, let's say, pseudoscience about job market research, where apparently, and again, it, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, the presentation they made there, so I'm not entirely sure how accurate this is. But apparently, there's less uh, companies search less for data scientists and a lot more for data engineers, precisely for the fact that data scientists don't immediately add value. And if you're a Google or a Microsoft or a Yahoo or a Twitter or any one of those big companies that really the data is their bread and butter. They need these data scientists to just figure out the next thing that will make money for them. Yeah. But for most people that actually are using big data, machine learning, whatever, in everyday production, yeah, innovation is important, definitely. No way around that. But they also want to make money, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 very much so. So for them, at the, the end of the how to land a job in big in data science was, well, you might go for the data science thing, but you get so many people doing a couple of uh, MOOCs and online courses and then call themselves a data scientist. That's a very, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of, yeah, how do you say that in a nice way? Snake oil? Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I'm reminded to the, when I started in, in, in IT a long, long time ago, you had the same thing. IT was becoming hot and computers became hot and everybody became a programmer overnight. And and, and clay tablets, you, you could you could reuse them, right? I understand. Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> and we're in the same kind of area now with the data scientist thing and this data engineer role. Yeah, I, I really see how it fits. So it's, uh, yeah. Nice. Very good. All right, then. Over to you for your final article. Yeah, my final article by the same guys who did this uh, <laughs> landed job in data science. They're actually GoData-driven. They're a local mm-hmm. boutique consultancy firm that does a lot of uh, Hadoop and big data things. I've actually worked with them in the past, so I know a couple of guys there. Hi, GoData-driven. And what I want to talk about is a small one. It's entitled How to Write Code Using Dark, uh, sorry, Spark DataFrame API, a focus on comp- composability and testing. It's written by Giovanni Lanzani. 
nice name. And it's a very short article with a lot of uh, code examples just showing the different ways of accessing structured data in Spark, which you can do using the Data Frame API or Spark SQL. And Spark SQL has had a lot of hype uh, um, in the second half of last year, not, not that much after that, I guess. And it just shows you visually how, on the one hand, Spark SQL can be very easy to write if you're a SQL engineer, but DataFrame gives you a lot more flexibility. So if you're using Spark and you want to know more, you want to access structured inf- uh, data from a database somewhere, there are two quite separate approaches of doing exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's a nice article. Just read it and you'll see what I mean. It's very hard to explain talking about it but if you're a de- for me i think if you're a developer if you're a programmer if you're a data scientist data engineer just uh with what we talked about earlier i think the data frame is going to really be your cup of tea if on the other hand you're a purely database administrator origin and sql is your bread and butter then it might be a hard shift Though that being said, a lot of the structured data stores today are also moving away from the pure SQL into something a little bit more programmatic, a little, little bit more, yeah, how do you, what's the name for that? Uh, the old ADO.net from a couple of years ago, the, the data modeling layers between yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Just allow more flexibility and, uh, yeah, going into functional programming with SQL strings, that doesn't work. So it's a nice little article, very nicely explained. And I wanted to throw it out there. That's my final article. Very good. Very good. All right. So in that case, that's it for the news. I hope you enjoyed it. And after the break, um, we'll be coming back with the second part of our session on uh, what goes wrong with Hadoop. Um, and this is uh, you know, primarily uh, Sheetal Dulles going through um, more of the application layer um, issues that, that occur rather than the, uh, the infrastructure pieces. So stay tuned yeah. for that. And uh, Paul Codding at the end is going to talk about the SmartSense product from Hortworks. Uh, there we go. So stay tuned for that. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll catch you on the other side. The other thing that uh, I would like to highlight uh, again is uh, uh, I'll start with uh, the real life situation that we had one customer um, where they were running a lot of uh, jobs on their Hadoop clusters. And what they eventually realized that they have quite a few jobs that are, that are waiting for containers to be allocated because there were not enough resources on the cluster. So mm-hmm. their conclusion was that uh, um, our perf- Cluster performance is slower because we are running out of capacity. Yeah. So when we actually looked at it, um, the reality was very different. The reality was that the cluster was not at all overutilized. In fact, it was underutilized. And the reason was that um, when they did initial POCs, in their some of initial POCs, they were running very large queries that needed yeah. very large containers of like 8 GB heap. Mm-hmm. So that was a configuration that they started with. And they said, okay, the way I'm going to configure my uh, yarn container allocations is that every yarn container will have minimum 8 GB of heap. But in production, most of the applications never needed it. So what used to happen is 
when you run a job, it will grab a container which is having 8 GB of space, but it will actually not use it, eventually wasting that particular memory space and not letting any other containers run. So it was reducing your ability to run more parallel workload and totally wasting resources. Now, having that kind of insights as to what kind of jobs I'm running, what kind of memory requirements or resource requirements it has, and what is its actual utilization, would help you understand, is your cluster-wide configuration optimal? Is 8GB optimal thing for your cluster? Or is it just needed for one-off query? In most of the cases, what we have seen is cluster-wide configurations need to be much smaller because most of the workloads do not need huge containers. Yeah. So you can tune your yarn containers based on various factors such as amount of memory that you have on the host, number of disks that you have on the host, uh, number of nodes that you have in the cluster, um, and come up with optimal uh, container size that can fit for most of the workloads. And you always will have workloads that need larger containers. They can override this configuration and ask for bigger containers only for those queries. In such, if you do this this way, then what happens is your cluster throughput will increase because 80% or 90% of your workloads will not waste the resources and you'll be able to run more uh, queries, more jobs, and get more throughput from the cluster. Again, I think this, yeah, the yarn container sizing seems to be one of those one of those things that to to people that are new to Hadoop, it, it almost seems a bit like black magic. You know, what's mm-hmm. the right container yeah. size? But it, you know, there's actually, as you mentioned, there's there's some reasonably um, easy to comprehend, you know, relatively simple maths behind it that you can get at least you know pretty close to um, some sensible at least default settings. Absolutely, absolutely. And in this case, there is there is no right or wrong answer, really. It is just that what is more optimal for your particular need. And uh, I, I don't remember um, if we have any blog on this, but um, there is a high chance that we will have blog that explains what are the factors that impact your um, container sizes um, and how they impact it. As I said, typically, you have to look at how much CPU you have on the cluster, on the node, how much memory you have, how many disks you have, what type of disks you have, because that also would matter. If you have SSDs, obviously you can run more parallel uh, containers. If you have a SATA disks, your parallelization would probably go a little down. Also, yeah. it depends on what else is running on that particular node. So considering all these factors, you can come up with a close approximation that what might make most, most sense for your cluster and configure your cluster-wide configurations accordingly and tune it for a specific job that have different requirements. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Yeah, I think of all the configuration we have, like different tunables we have within HTTP, within Hadoop in general, this one calculation is probably the most important when it comes to getting the most throughput from the hardware you have. I mean, to Sheila's point, we've seen like double, you know, like 2x improvements in throughput going from 500 concurrent jobs to 1,200 concurrent jobs in the same hardware by just making a couple of these configuration changes. So it's very important to get right. Absolutely. Very very true. true. I have personally um, got into many engagements which are purely tuning. And in most of the cases, just by tuning this, we were able to just double the performance. 
Excellent. Well, I mean, that sounds like a, a perfect place to uh, uh, for people to focus when they're starting to um, actually get into running real jobs in their clusters. Take a look at your yarn container sizes. Uh, potentially, there's uh, some performance for free right there. So we, we talked about the performance. We, we talked two scenarios, and I would now... I'd like to talk about a couple of scenarios and a couple of things that uh, give you insights into what kind of operational challenges um, Hadoop admins and Hadoop users might have. Yeah. Again, uh, as as my, um, my favorite way of doing it, I would like to start with anecdotes and real life stories. Um, this is again a story from a customer uh, where user accidentally deleted uh, entire file system on HDFS. He did. HDFS, DFS, minus RM, minus R recursive, and put a slash instead of um, putting the full path. In fact, he put a full path, but there was a space after slash. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and what happens? Um, the entire file system starts getting deleted. Now, user realizes something has gone wrong. He come, come immediately does a control C of that command. But you know, when the command is issued and name node receives command, name node starts working on it. So even if you do control C on command line, the command is still running on the cluster. So blocks are still getting deleted. I never told that. So, <laughs> so in panic, the user shuts down HDFS immediately. Good thing to do. But then later on, he is confused. Now what to do? Um, is my data gone? Is my trash uh, data going to be there in trash? Is my trash enabled? So to check that, the user restarts HDFS. Okay. And the moment you restart HDFS, <laughs> name node keeps working because your trash interval is already expired. The blocks are getting deleted. And when these kind of things happen, <clears throat> it is almost impossible to recover blocks and reconstruct HDFS file system because it's happening at large scale. And unfortunately, this happens more frequently than what we might think. Um, for this customer, it happened twice by two different users. So you can imagine that oh. these are... Simple things, but they happen more frequently than what we can expect. So, <clears throat> obviously, uh, HDFS has features uh, that can help you get out of this. So, right from early versions of Hadoop, uh, there were features of controlling and enabling your trash. So, by default, the trash is enabled, and it has, uh, I think, uh, 600 minutes of uh, trash duration. So, first thing is making sure that your trash is enabled, then finding out what is the right trash interval for you? Because having too small will not give you enough time in recovery. Having too large might just keep occupying space on your Hadoop cluster, and your HDFS utilization might go pretty high, and you may not have space for newer data sets. So knowing that, is my trash enabled? What is the right trash interval? These are the questions that you need to ask and answer and configure your system accordingly. In addition to that, after seeing these things, we have added new features into uh, newer versions of HDFS where you can mark certain directories as protected. So for example, root directory, apps directory, user directory, uh, that can be marked as protected directory so that even if somebody issues command by mistake, they will not be deleted. Obviously, as, as I mentioned before, that there's a large community working on improving these things and new features keep coming in and admins may not know all these new features and how to take advantage of those. And that's where those automated systems really would help and take advantage of these new features uh, and find out what is the right thing for your version of Hadoop. So that's one thing. 
the another thing uh, again is uh, related to hdfs and it's about uh, operations um the point that i want to actually uh, highlight and drive uh, through this particular situation is that how seemingly simple and small things can result into disastrous situations so this was a situation where <clears throat> user is start, started to seeing um, user started to see an um impact on their cluster and that impact was just getting cascading especially on hdfs the situation was that hdfs was upgraded and after upgrade the hdfs utilization utilization kept on increasing <clears throat> so what they did was they deleted large data sets because uh, they thought that once we delete data that we don't need uh, the data will be freed up and even after deletion things did not change much utilization was still high now somebody said that because we deleted a lot of data we should rebalance our system so somebody did a rebalance and in, in fact after rebalance the data utilization went even higher because there was <laughs> replicated everywhere and eventually hdfs became unresponsive because there was absolutely no space to do anything new there would you want to take a guess why this might have happened have they not done the finalized step as part <laughs> exactly. of the upgrade Oh, right. <laughs> they just missed that last step of doing finalize and many times people do not know that until hdfs upgrade is finalized your old data is not removed it's not deleted there are hard links and hard references to old data so that if you want to roll back you can roll back to the old data sets yeah so what happens is that the the old data is still there even if you delete it it's physically not deleted when you do rebalance the new blocks are replicated again to new blocks <laughs> so you have new blocks and you have old blocks your utilization is going up <clears throat> so again the point is that these are very very small and they they appear to be very simple things but when this happens in production it is a very very huge distress for all the people literally nightmares night outs and trying to figure out and get into panic situation that how to get out of this and when we try to debug these kind of things these are not the thoughts that come to our mind because we we think that this is so obvious that somebody is going to upgrade and finalize and we would yeah. not really look into uh, these kind of situations we will start looking into okay what happened to hdfs is there issue in hdfs is there configuration issue is there a code bug and you spend lot of time on getting into uh, the real root cause yeah I mean the, the 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 issue around the the first one that you mentioned just now with the the trash is unfortunately you're right it, it does it does seem to happen uh, a lot more often than certainly than than I would have hoped uh, and the the comment uh, I always I always hear is god I wish I wish this had an undo button <laughs> and unfortunately the the more complex that these kind of uh distributed systems get it, it's just you it's no longer possible you've got you've got sort of you know a, you've got an amount of command and control but they once once the commands have been you know as you say issued by the name node and, and start to be paralyzed across the cluster there's you know there really is no going back unless you've set things like the 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 uh, safety net for your your trash and that sort of thing it's it's one of those it's just one of those things that if you don't have that in place um this is bound to bound to hurt you at some point the other thing that's probably worth uh, mentioning is of course you you know 
it's uh, it's definitely worth having and ensuring that you've got the right level of um, security and, and permissions applied you know, through whatever role-based or um, tag-based access control mechanism you're using, you know, things like Ranger and so forth. You, you, you really shouldn't give, um, you know, as many users as possible that level of access to the file system. You know, people should be uh, controlled to the, the the minimum they really need to actually uh, do their jobs and that sort of thing. So it's something else to be thinking about as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So so I know that we don't have a lot of time, but I would like to quickly highlight some of the security issues that we typically see. <clears throat> the first one that we always see is that um, there is something called UMask in HDFS, um, pretty mm-hmm. similar to the UMask that we have in Linux. And unfortunately, to make things simpler for initial deployments and for people to um, get things running, the UMask is set to uh, 027, <clears throat> uh, sorry, 022, which what it does is that it gives access to almost everybody to read data, and nobody goes and checks it. And I'm pretty certain that nobody wants to create all the files having access to everybody. So simple things like changing that UMask to 027 instead of 022 can significantly improve security of your system. There are things like um, Hadoop has features that you can run certain commands uh, on behalf of somebody else. Services like Uzi for that matter or Hive Server for that matter, they can run commands and queries on behalf of somebody. So there are um, proxy settings in HDFS that you can say that who can do what actions on behalf of whom. By default, those are set to be star, means that uh, this user can run anything on behalf of any other user, which most people may not really want to do that. These default settings are just to get things started so that you can actually see the real functional things. But once you cross your functional needs, somebody has to go and look back into all these non-functional requirements, which typically people forget to do. Um, so these are things that we see very, very frequently uh, on, on the security side. And as you mentioned that, when when people are getting into newer versions of Hadoop where Ranger is there, using Ranger to define appropriate policies on who can do what, who, can, who should have access to which data sets, um, that kind of configuration is simplified uh, like very, very, it, it, it has been made very, very simple. And people can just literally go in UI and change things and use those controls to protect their data. Yeah, it just makes, it makes life so much easier. Um, I mean, are there, are there other things that are maybe particularly applicable, um, you know, when when clusters are being are being scaled or when, I mean, when people are going through um, major version upgrades? Absolutely. So <clears throat> I think it's, it's always a wise thing to do when a cluster is going through certain change and that change could be a major upgrade or the change could be expansion of cluster, we should rethink about <clears throat> the current situation of cluster and the target situation of cluster and pre-identify, pre-plan what things need to change as part of this expansion. So mm-hmm. things, the things that we talked about, uh, tuning your container sizes, tuning your uh, name node heap sizes or heap sizes of various services, uh, changing certain controls, uh, changing name node uh, handlers because you are going to increase number of uh, um, uh, data nodes in your cluster or changing certain properties or adding new properties because you are getting into newer versions and newer versions have features, new features like the one that I mentioned, the protected directories in HDFS. 
So those things need to be really thought through before we directly jump on to making any kind of significant change to cluster like expansion of number of nodes or um, upgrading. And such things should be identified and applied during that transformation that's happening. Again, uh, I would again really, really want to reiterate that doing this manually is unfair on admins. It's too much work (laughs) and too many variables there. Having tools that can help doing this kind of checks, pre-upgrade and post-upgrade, and recommending right things for their cluster is the way to go. Definitely. Any anything that you can automate should be automated. I mean, it's it's one of the, the one of the major tenements, especially of of scale out systems. You know, you cattle not pets. You just want to roll these things out and forget about them as much as possible. Absolutely. All right. Anything else that you that's particularly worth uh, worth mentioning around this area? So there are certain other things um, that we did not talk about, and maybe we should talk about some other time. Is that now we just talked about the cluster, cluster configurations, and the uh, environment configurations, OS configurations, and so on. But once that that is just a starting step. Once yep. you have that nailed down, next thing is your actual workloads. And there are many yep. questions people want to get answered. That admins would want to know which are the jobs that have significant impact on my cluster. Or even to just understand what type of workload is running on my cluster. Is it high queries? Is it big jobs? Is it, uh, is it uh, Spark? Uh, or is it like always long-running long jobs or short jobs? Having that kind of understanding. Or even to know who are the top users of my platform. Uh, and if, we, if I know which are the top users and which are the top jobs, how do I improve performance of those uh, particular jobs? If I have multiple tenants, uh, how can I understand their utilizations and how can I prepare chargeback for those particular tenants? Or even the simpler questions like, what is a good time for maintenance of a clusters which will have least impact on the actual workloads? So there are many, many questions like this that uh, Hadoop admin is faced with. And, and definitely there need to be better solutions around this. Um, so as I said, I think maybe we should uh, talk about this sometime later in more details. We do have uh, some suggestions, some ideas, some best practices, and also some tools that can help answer all these questions and even more questions like this. And again, uh, it's the same point that these things can be automated. Nobody has to literally sit and uh, monitor individual jobs and find out what is significant, what is not significant. So that, that's the thing that, um, that, that I think um, is something that we, w- we should talk eventually someday. Sounds like a great topic for another podcast episode. All right. So a lot of the things that we've been talking about throughout these uh, the, this last couple of episodes have been around you know the, the huge variety of, of tuning parameters and configuration options uh, across both your, your operating system and across the Hadoop layer. Uh, it, it, it seems like there should be something out there to, to really help you um, get some of these settings checked and, and correct, Paul. Um, if only such a thing existed. <laughs> if only, if only, yeah, so true. And that's that's it's a great segue to you know what what Sheila and I focus on today, which is SmartSense, which is a product that we have within Hortonworks that's available to all of our Hortonworks support subscription customers. And it's because when we looked at the configuration related issues, environment related issues that we've had over even the past four years, 
combined, there are about 40% of our customers' support cases are related to either configuration or environment-related problems. And these are the things that, you know, to our point as far as what we've been talking about, they can take days to troubleshoot some of these issues. And so our goal with creating SmartSense was to help our customers avoid these problems from happening, avoid these issues before they cause a name node outage or cause issues with performance and cause you to have to, you know, call us up to get uh, get our support. And so kind of how it works is we work with support every single week to identify what are some of those like sub one production down type issues that our customers have had and how can we turn that into a rule that we can write and whenever we get information from our customers clusters we can run those rules against it to see if your specific cluster is suffering from any of the issues that we've seen that can cause problems and how we help you avoid those issues is we send you a set of recommendations that say after analyzing your configuration how you're using the cluster today these are the things that we think you need to change. We've noticed that on 10 of your machines, your time zone's not correct. On five, you've got NTPD that's not running. And there's these performance optimizations that you could um, quickly take advantage of. So it's something that we've seen help a lot of our customers, um, just because there are a lot of different configuration knobs and tunables. And to Sheetal's point, there's lots of things that are situational, um, depending on your specific cluster, your specific jobs, how much data you have within HDFS and the shape of that data, specific configuration properties need to be set to suit. So SmartSense helps your configuration really keep pace with how you're using the cluster. And we've seen it as something that's helped a lot of our customers avoid a lot of issues. So we're excited about what we're doing and hope we're excited too. Definitely. I mean, the, generally the the move towards being being more proactive and trying to get the the issues at least alerted if not kind of resolved before it really does become a critical you know my, my cluster's gone down kind of issue has has got to be a good thing for, for everybody involved yeah because you know each of these issues can cause pain <laughs> we want to avoid that pain and and if if your peer has got an issue we want to make sure that you don't suffer from that same issue so that's why we've developed it to be as proactive as possible to help our customers avoid these issues um, so that you can kind of take advantage of our collective knowledge that we have and that we've been accruing over the last decade with Hadoop. The kind of interesting thing is um, we talk to a lot of people and and one of the initial conversations is, you know, oh, we, we've got really smart people here. You know, they, they get uh, a another technology doesn't matter what you're talking about really but you know they they get this xyz technology um they'll be fine and the the kind of my kind of response to that is always i'm sure you have really smart people everywhere has really smart people mm-hmm. we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking to you if that weren't the case but those really smart people have probably only seen i don't know maybe two or three clusters of any real scale and and sort of level of um sophistication probably maybe a few more if you're if you're lucky but the the sort of the benefit that things like this have is you've literally got hundreds of of clusters the the sort of the profiling and the um the interrogation uh, of those environments all coming into this which is you know way more than any one person uh, could ever hope to actually draw their knowledge from Exactly. And I mean, you get to kind of tap into that knowledge, both of what we've seen, you know, with profiling our customers' clusters, as well as what the hundreds of support people and the hundreds of engineers that we have at Hortonworks have also seen. So 
you can kind of think of it as a force multiplier for your Hadoop operations team. You get to take advantage of their knowledge, which is awesome, but you also get to get an automated way to take advantage of our knowledge. Yeah, it also kind of frees up those intelligent people to do stuff that they're really good at instead of doing things that a computer can do, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, the yeah, last yeah. thing you want is to pay a lot of people to you know manage the the operating system and the operations and keep the platform running. The platform should be able to take care of itself, and that's really our goal with SmartSense. Yeah. So this reminds me of a quote from one of the Yahoo administrator who I was talking to before we started SmartSense, and he quoted this. So he, he's an administrator in Yahoo who is managing multiple clusters and serving thousands of internal employees. And he said that people make mis- people make mistakes all the time. And Hadoop lets it make at high scale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's exactly what we want to avoid uh, through these kind of tools. As you probably now realize that both me and Paul were in the field and looking at these issues again and again, we were so highly motivated that both of us left field and got into product to develop SmartSense because we strongly believe that that can significantly add value to how people use Hadoop clusters, how they operate it, and it can free up their time to do more productive activities rather than trying to find out what is right configurations and when to tune in and what to tune it to. Very much so. Um, I mean, one of the the kind of curious things is the the way that that perhaps. Um, it might be worth going over a little bit about how SmartSense works. Obviously, there's a there's a, collect, a, a data collection element. One of the things that people uh, usually think of when they hear data collection is they think, well, I'm not sure I want data collected. Um, but uh, my understanding is that uh, there's, you know, we take very uh, great care over that, and there's there's a lot of things that we do with respect to anonymization. Perhaps uh, do you want to run through that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so when we when we initially approached, you know, how are we going to create these specific tools to gather the right diagnostic information, secure that information, and make sure that um, we have a solution that works for a wide array of different verticals like retail, healthcare, financial services who have specific data protection um, regulations and best practices that they want to make sure we adhere to. And so we work really closely with a lot of our key customers in those different verticals to make sure that the solution that we eventually provide and that we provided so far um, gives them enough flexibility to meet the regulation and compliance objectives of their security teams. So how it works is we have tools that are deployed to your cluster. Uh, Those are integrated with Mbari, so it's just another service. You can click Add Service, install SmartSense. And those tools are really focused on collecting the diagnostic information that uh, powers the recommendations and analysis that we provide. And how they work is whenever you want to capture the information for us to analyze, you can do that ad hoc. You can just click a button, say, hey, capture data for analysis, or you can set up a schedule. Typically, our customers will do like a once-a-week schedule, so they'll pack up information and send it to us. But how we secure the information that's collected is every node in the cluster will capture configuration and metrics for the different services that are deployed to that node. And then the processing that we do on the individual nodes of the cluster is we have a a rule set of the specific data that we need to redact. So it could be clear text passwords in HiveSat XML, or or it could be looking for specific patterns of data within log files or configuration and remove them. Or also it could be anonymizing specific uh, data sets. So we have rules for IP addresses, fully qualified domain names, email addresses, et cetera. And whenever we identify a pattern match within configs or metrics or logs, we will anonymize that data. 
And so that rule set, meaning the data that you want to either redact or anonymize or replace, is completely flexible. It's up to our customers to figure out you know, what are additional things that they would like to make sure are scrubbed automatically before the data is sent to us. So once the, we complete the anonymization, we pack up all that information to a file, compress that file, encrypt it, and send it to our hosted services, who then kind of take it the rest of the way and make sure the data gets analyzed and the recommendations are produced. So we put a lot of work into making sure the diagnostic information that we gather is secured appropriately and our customers have the controls in place to tune it to their specific needs. And we've done a lot of work on our host environment side to ensure that our data is stored securely and its um, um, retention periods are set up appropriately. So something that we put a lot of work, a lot of effort into, and, and also something, like I said, we've had the input and scrutiny of our financial services, retail, and healthcare customers. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, certainly from, from my personal, personal perspective and from um, customers that I work with that have used it, um, I, I can't speak highly enough for it. it it's, uh, it's certainly saved my bacon time and time again, and uh, our customers certainly seem to love it. So certainly, uh, definitely, you should both absolutely keep doing what you're doing. Um, so I think that's about all the time we have, uh, unfortunately. Um, thank you both for your time, Paul, Sheetal, very much appreciated. Um, any final words before we wrap up? I don't think so. Thank you very much for the invite. We really appreciate it, Dave. Yeah, th thanks. We, we really enjoyed this discussion. And I will just want to highlight um, just a summary of this is that um, Hadoop really is a great system. You can do a variety of things on that. It's very, very flexible. Um, but we would really, really want you guys to take advantage of tools like SmartSense that can save you from small mistakes that can result into disasters or it result into huge downtimes. Because it's unfair for uh, any Hadoop admin to expect that they would know everything that is coming in newer version. Things keep changing very frequently. It's a huge community that is adding a lot of new features, new things. And to be able to take advantage of all these new features, new things, and appropriate tunings, uh, some tool is the right way to go for. That's, that's how I look at it. And that's why we strongly believe in tools that can automate many of these things and simplify the life of Hadoop admins as well as Hadoop users. So we really wish you uh, having a very, very happy Hadoop journey and very rewarding Hadoop results. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Thanks very much. All right. Um, thanks very much, Sheetal. Your time very much appreciated. And thanks to Paul, too. Um, it's been great. It's been really useful. Um, we will we will certainly uh, have an interesting, exciting episode for our listeners. It's our pleasure. We are so excited to always talk about these things and somehow help others not get, in, get into the same troubles that we have been through. Absolutely. was the interview with Paul Cotting and Seidel Dolas. I, I had a great time talking to those guys. Yeah, very, very smart guys. Been in the ecosystem for quite a while. Really know what they're talking about. And always yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, we should get a, a yearly appointment with these guys to see what, how it changes, what happens, what the differences are from last year. Good idea, good idea. <laughs>
<laughs> well, you know, Paul and uh, Sheetal, so reach yeah. out to them. Yeah, yeah. And if, if you as an audience enjoyed it, then let us know. Definitely always interact. But not right now, because um, I think we've spent a lot of time talking again. So that's all the time we have for today, sadly. We do hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back as usual in two weeks' time with a brand new episode about something probably related to the Hadoop Dataworks, but we'll see. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us some feedback and questions via the feedback form on our website or via email, of course, to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Do not forget, this is the last uh, period for the uh, Hortonworks Summit raffle. So we look forward to all your shenanigans and uh, see how you can publicize the Roaring Elephant in the same fashion. Do remember the contest closes on the 21st of February at 23 hours and 59 minutes UTC. So get your raffle entries in before that. That's it. Until next time, my name is John. My name is Dave. And we do look forward to talking to you in two weeks. See you then.